Our guest this week is Mandy McAllister, who has been an entrepreneur since she was 12 years old. She followed volleyball to Mercer University in Georgia, where she was a top graduate in marketing in 2002. Soon after, she moved to Chicago to do a master's in economics and began to work at the Board of Trade. Her professional career transitioned to medical device sales, where she was a perennial top performer. After many years chasing commission, she has made it her mission to secure financial freedom for her family and others. As a real estate investor, her expertise includes repositioning underperforming assets to increase cash flow and value. She has has a portfolio currently comprised of 198 doors, primarily B-minus workforce housing. Mandy has found success in college towns with student housing as well as urban centers. Her passion is to help others define their path to financial freedom, especially women through her platform, Aspiring Women Achieving More. We talked to Mandy about her first small multifamily purchase and the uncommon way she was able to increase her cash flow, her definition of forever money, some bad recommendations she hears from other real estate investors, and why she finds a $1 million loan to be the sweet spot for investing in multifamily. I'm Neil. And I'm Brittany. And this is The Road to Family Freedom. Before we get to this week's show, we'd like to make you aware of something. We are self-storage investors. We buy existing self-storage facilities and vacant buildings that can be converted to self-storage in the Sun Belt. We buy them with cash and some with loans, and we use private lenders who become equity partners in our deals. These equity partners share in the cash flow and the profits when we sell. When we find a deal that we are considering, we call the equity partners and offer them a share of the ownership secured by the property. So if you've ever driven by a self-storage facility and thought, I wonder who owns those things? and you have any interest in learning more about the storage business, we'd love to chat with you. Head on over to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash storage. That's roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash S-T-O-R-A-G-E and set up a time to chat. We look forward to speaking with you. All right, enough out of us. Let's hit the road to family freedom. Mandy McAllister, welcome to the Road to Family Freedom. <laughs> oh, hi. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> That's great. Oh, God, we were having we were having a little too much fun right before we got on the call. So, all right. Um, so, um, you became an entrepreneur at the age of twelve. We have to hear, we, we have to hear that story because uh, we will soon have a twelve-year-old. Um, he's six, soon. going on. He's six going on 13 sometimes. (laughs) I know. (laughs) So tell us about your 12, 12 year old entrepreneurial self. Sure. So I, uh, both my parents are self-employed. My dad's a farmer. My mom owns a gift manufacturing company. And um, I saw a need as a, like a a 12 year old kid that, uh, my volleyball team and my cheerleading squad, we wanted scrunchies that matched our uniforms. And you, you know, there was no internet in the movies, you know? (laughs) So, uh, I, I would go to Walmart and I would buy these bolts of fabric and I would make, you know, um, scrunchies that I'm so surprised they're back in fashion. Um, but I would, I would sew them for the surrounding cheerleading squads. And I made like, as a 12 year old, I made like $1,500 or something that summer from all the, you know, surrounding girl teams. And what do you do with that? But I, that, that, it kind of sparked a, a bug in my head that, um, my, you can really create some cool stuff on your own. That's awesome. Anything that, anything you take away from that, uh, any, any lessons that you learned as a 12 year old that you could apply now? Um, there's always a need to be filled. And, you know, if you want some, or if, if something is um, a void that you want to fill for your life, rest assured that someone else wants to fill that void too. And if you're creative and add enough value, then you can, you know, do well for yourself and help people fix their problems. Yeah. Well, I've so often heard the best description I've ever heard for entrepreneurship is just finding a problem that you have or finding a problem that other people have and finding a way to solve it. Exactly. So on, on WhatsApp, you, I've been using that a lot for work, my day job and ha- you have like a tagline and my tagline on WhatsApp is Mandy McAllister. If there was a problem, yo, I'd solve it. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I, love, I think we just found a show title. 
<laughs> oh, for the, the show. Okay, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> we have oh, a show title. Yeah, it's yeah. the Road to Family Freedom. <laughs> <laughs> Episode title. Mm, mom moment. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, fine. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, do you want to talk to us about um, your... Um, financial endeavors in the later years with the first rental property that you ever purchased? Yeah, sure. I, it, it, owning rental properties was kind of always in the back of my mind because I, um, I remember being in college, a friend was talking about her dad owned that house and she rented it out to all of our other friends. And I'm like, this is the best idea ever. And um, I, in 2008, bought a condo in Chicago with the expectation that I would burr that like I would, you know, that would appreciate, I'd be able to move out and buy something else. But we, you know, had dipped some in 2008, but it went down a lot further uh, in Chicago. So that didn't really work. So um, in 2014, I moved out and became a landlord of that first place. But the, the thing that I think would make the most sense to chat about was my first purchase for express purpose of it being a rental, which was a four unit property outside of um, Illinois State University. Um, I, I wanted it to kind of be in my backyard. I knew Chicago didn't work in terms of rent to value return math, you know? So, um, then I looked at colleges cause I thought kids will always be going to school, even with, you know, pandemics, even with, you know, uh, apprenticeships and whatever, I still think kids will keep going to school. And um, Illinois State was one of the four that I looked at that had, it had the strongest um, growth in terms of student enrollments. So, and it just so happened that they were tearing down a couple of dorms at that time. So that's why I focused on that to be my first market that I was buying in. Smart. Uh, and what um, what was the cost? What was the initial purchase price? It's, it's just going to blow your mind. So uh, what things was the, that I what learned. What was the year? So we'll have a better context. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Touche. Uh, 2016. Um, I, it was actually right as my kiddo was born. He's four and a half now. And my thought was, this is going to be his college education, right? So I'm going to buy this fourplex. My tenants are going to pay it down by the time he's ready for school. I'll put a new loan on it and whatever I take out, that's what he gets to use for school, which I still think is a pretty good, you know, strategy, but it, anyway, so, um, what I found out when I dug into this college market was an empty rental would rent for about $400, 450 for one bedrooms. But if you furnished it, it would go for like 700, almost $800, Right. So I bought off of an unfurnished rental, the $400 uh, rent per month. So get this, it was uh, $120,000, $30,000 a door that I paid in 2016. Crazy. And how much money did you have to bring to the table? Uh, It was, I did a 75% loan to value. So 25% of that. Um, I knew full well that I would be doing kind of like a mild reposition because I wanted to make it a college furnished rental. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think one kind of happy mistake that I made was at the time I was coaching volleyball and one of the women I was coaching with had just finished uh, attending Illinois State. And I said, okay, if you're going to rent an apartment and live off campus, who do you call? And she's like, well, it's one of these two property managers. They're the, you know, these two names, you go to them. And so I interviewed both of them. I loved what one of them had to say. And, you know, I, I really leaned on them to figure out what pricing should be. And I'm still working with them now. So um, anyway, they're the ones who helped me get to 800 a door within a couple of years. Nice, nice. How did you go about furnishing the apartments? Another happy mistake is because <laughs> I, I chose to partner with this property manager who, I mean, they have a few hundred of their own doors in that market that they manage. So um, they buy in bulk um, couches and dressers and whatever. Oh, so, you know, I just got real curious and I asked some questions. I was sitting with my property manager and said, all right, well, how do you buy dressers? And he said, oh, well, here's our catalog of the four choices that we have for a couch, for a, you know, dresser, for a desk. I'm like, okay, I'll take one B, three F and D, D seven. Right. And then it was furnished and I got to buy in the bulk rate under their umbrella. So happy accident. Gotcha. So you, when you bought it, 
you had to come with 30, 30K down for the down payment, and then you had to come up with money for the furnishings, correct? Yeah, roughly five thousand fifty to fifty three hundred somewhere in there each um that that furniture though um i think i've replaced like one item in the you know four four and a half years that i've owned that property so it's it's not something you repurchase every single year yeah gotcha gotcha so you you had to come to the table with about thirty six thousand dollars to get in on that deal give or take okay yeah so any um this is a a loaded question. Any particular challenges to, to, uh, renting to students? You know what? So I, okay. So we talk a lot in real estate investing about people make money where you go do the thing that other people don't want to do. Right. So like, if you're going to knock doors, if you're going to make cold calls, if you're going to, well, how many of us are like, Ooh, student rentals, they're going to ruin my property. This is gross. Right. So, so many other investors have talked themselves out of this asset class. Well, guess what? I bought one bedroom apartments. Those are for graduate students. Those are for, you know, the nerdy folks who don't want to throw a sophomore year kegger. You know what I mean? And oh, by the way, I also have their parents sign on that lease. And we we, we have a, a security deposit. So if something goes through a wall, who cares? I have money of theirs to fix it with. Gotcha. That's awesome. Uh, and then are the leases 12 months or are they more like nine months or what? So some kids only want to rent for the school year, and uh, that makes sense. But if they want to do that, they pay a surcharge per month of $50, um, which kind of helps me buffer that risk that we might not fill it. Gotcha. Um, but, you know, some do for 12 months, gotcha. but we give them options. Gotcha. And the school year is nine months? Is that roughly, roughly what it is? Okay, so you got an extra mm-hmm. 450 All right, gotcha. All right, cool. Um, so... Um, how did you go from four, uh, a four unit property in 2016 to now what, 186 units? It's so funny how like I've sold some stuff off. I bought some new stuff, like in terms of exactly what my number is, it's somewhere between, um, 150 and 205. Yeah. Like I'm somewhere in there. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's so funny when you're making weird moves. It's anyway. So, um, I, I got bit by the bug, right? Like I, I saw, oh my gosh, one transaction, scale, tons of cash flow. Let's do this, right? So um, I, I ended up then buying a six unit in Kenosha, Wisconsin, which is just over the border from Chicago into Wisconsin, which everybody knows where Kenosha is these days, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> which is hilarious. I don't watch the news. I haven't watched the news for years. Somebody sent me a text message, hey, is everything okay at your building? And I'm like, why? It's Kenosha. There's no problem there. Oh, God. <laughs> Blissfully unaware. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, the, the whole crux of why I couldn't lose, uh, I mean, you can lose, but like why I had the risk reward so in my favor on the fourplex was because there was that huge upside potential in rent. You know, I found a six unit that was listed on an MLS just listed on normal MLS because mom and pop owners didn't totally know what they were doing with a, you know, just entry level commercial asset. <clears throat> and they were renting for 475 for some of the units. And uh, just looking at apartments.com across the street, they were renting for 850. Mm-hmm. Like sure that building one bedrooms looked way nicer than mine did, but you can't convince me that it's, it's half as nice, you know? Yeah. So uh, really kind of, I think that is what gives me, gave me the confidence really early on to know I couldn't lose when there was that huge Delta, that huge upside in, in potential rent collection. Gotcha. Um, okay. So, so again, have you, you know, that's, that's a pretty big scale to go from four to over 180. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Are you, have you been bringing in private money? Um, are you independently wealthy? Did you get an inheritance? Uh, you know, well, I'm a farm kid. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So I'll tell you, like I, I started, I, I feel very firmly that you should walk before you run, you know, you, you in order to, you know, go out and, and want to take down a hundred unit property, a 50 unit property, whatever it is, you know, you, you kind of want to know that you've got your feet under you 
with the basics that you've made your mistakes, your bigger mistakes without that extra zero. <clears throat> so that's why I did a four and then a six and then, you know, a couple of small things in there. So I ended up with a portfolio of roughly 20, well, 22 of my own uh, units. And then I kind of dived into the syndication world. Um, I realized that I had um, some uh, IRA dollars that I could self-direct. And I was super curious about syndication. So before biting one off all by myself, I chose to take those uh, IRA dollars from a former employer that had rolled into an IRA from a 401k, and I chose to self-direct them. And I found um, some guys that I knew that I liked the way they looked at numbers. And I saw a business plan that also looked kind of totally in our favor and put money into that. And that was a 130 units, but I was a limited partner in that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, that's not the first time that I've heard that advice uh, for that advice from a lot of people who talk about, listen, if you have, if you are a current real estate investor who has, you know, um, some rental properties of your own, but you've never raised money that it's a good mm -hmm. idea to go out and, and, be a passive investor to see what it's like yep. so that you can then understand what that mindset is and what they're looking for, what they like, what they don't like. Um, cause I've had, um, I've had friends who, um, I think are great investors and, uh, they have started raising private capital, but they're terrible communicators. Yes. And that is something you cannot be as a syndicator. You, it's one of the, you can be, sort of bad at managing the asset class and still be a good communicator and things will be okay. But if you are yeah. bad, if you're good and you're not a good communicator or you're bad and you're also not a good communicator, you're going to piss off your, your investors really quickly. Absolutely. It's just like any relationship, right? Like you can have a jerk friend who just, you know, will tell you the truth and be upfront about things. And you're going to value that relationship more than someone who leaves you completely in the dark. So, you know, what kind of communication were they sending out? What sort of questions did I have as a newbie uh, passive investor? What sort of reports could I expect? How, how you know, there was a ton of things that I, you know, but I went into that passive investment with a purpose to, to really kind of learn that side of the business. And I think that if that is your strategy, that's another question you want to ask of whatever syndicator you're working with, how much education, how much, you know, fly on the wall can I be? Uh, and if, if they're not prepared to do that, then maybe that's not the right investment for you. Yeah, gotcha. So you have been, have you been raising under 506C or 506B, a little bit of both? So that syndication, I was a passive investor. I was just, I was the LP, the limited partner who just had money in the deal, was learning from <clears throat> how they were structuring things. Um, kind of observing that and observing kind of how the math pencils out in a syndication versus a joint venture and kind of looking at the landscape of where everybody else is looking. Um, you know, I had a chance to talk on a boot camp. Um, this past weekend, which is super fun. And I love a chance to kind of workshop, you know, what it is that we do and what we're into. Um, but, you know, those, you know, thousands of new real estate investors come out of these boot camps every year. And everybody's looking for a value add 100 unit property in a growth market. Right. So if I have all of this kind of, you know, great, I, I, I'm a product of that. That's how I started. But the mild contrarian piece of my brain tells me, how can I take the powerful bits of what it is that multifamily provides for me and put those to use, but maybe look in a corner that not everybody else is looking right so i'm not willing to give up the the super high growth markets in terms of population and jobs and gdp because that's what makes a market stay sustainable over time um, in terms of a hundred unit property that far <clears throat> you can still qualify to get the really good fannie mae or freddie mac government-backed agency debt that is non-recourse super low rate for longer terms um, if your loan balance is more than a million, and if you're looking at 70-ish thousand dollar a door complexes, you only need like 25 doors to make that happen. So I choose to bend on the size of asset that I'm looking at. And I, you know, I also, you know, 
I, I don't know. I'm not giving up the location. I will give up on size. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, well, the loca- you can, I don't want to say you can't fix size, but uh, you can be more flexible on size, whereas location, you can't change much about a location. A location, a city right. is going to do what a city is going to do. You know, when I look, um, when people bring me deals and I look at them and I look at a, uh, they're like, hey, it's a great market. It's a great market. I'm like, dude, it hasn't grown. Its population has been in decline for 30 years. He said, well, it's about to turn around. It's about to turn around. They got some, I'm like, really? Really? It's Are you talking about Chicago? No, no. <laughs> not, but there's, you know, there's areas. Uh, I think the one mo- most recent I looked at was <laughs> Tacoa, Alabama. Um, you know, and it was, uh, it was just like, Hey, listen, it's been in decline for 30 years. I don't know what's going to turn around. You know, uh, that's not, uh, that's not where I want to put my money long-term. Yeah. Smart. Yeah. Yeah. I, I also kind of think, you know, in that vein of, I like to be a long-term investor, you know, many syndications have a business plan that's three to five or seven years, maybe. Right. Like that is, you know, by definition, if you're planning to exit that asset in five or seven years, that's not forever, right? Well, I, I subscribe very much. <clears throat> I have all these economic theories because I that's what I studied, whatever. But, um, you know, you can get money by, you know, exchanging your time for money. Or you can flip a house and you get money one time. Or you can, you know, sell something and get money one time. Or you can develop this opportunity to have this annuity, to have money being printed, to have forever money. I don't want to focus on stuff that's going to bring me one-time money. I want to focus on stuff that's going to bring me forever money. And syndications really kind of don't do that. Joint ventures with partners who are aligned with what you want to do can be. Gotcha. So how do you, how do you structure that? Because one of the, you know, sometimes some investors, they want that money, they want to get in and they want to get out. Um, yep. And, you know, you got to be careful with, um, you know, I, I, for a while, a, a couple of years ago, I ran across a syndicator who what his idea was, well, I'm going to use the, the investors to basically use the down payment. And then I'm going to, I'm going to uh, refinance them out. And then we're going to keep holding the asset. And I was like, mm, I don't really like that. You know, that's, that's kind of a shady kind of thing. Um, how are you structuring it so that you can keep your, yourself and your investors in the deal long term? Yeah. <clears throat> so what I'll say is the kind of the business plan we've got on this most recent 53 unit that it, that we did as a joint venture, it's me and two business partners. So having fewer people involved, fewer cooks in the kitchen um, means a significantly easier path. That's one thing. Um, but if we knew upfront what each of us wanted was long-term cash flow. So that's what we sought out. And I'll tell you too, I talked about bending on size, but not on market. I also have recently, especially since COVID, um, bent on the requirement that I have a value add capability or possibly a huge value add possibility. Because if you're down this rabbit hole enough, and you've done the math on value add opportunities, you know that you, you know, if you put in a letter of intent on a property based solely off actuals, actual like T12, there's no way you're going to get that asset. You have to be willing to pay for some of the upside in order to take down a value add these days. And so what you're telling me is I need to pay for the opportunity I'm going to pay for $50 worth of a hundred dollar upside in hopes that I'm able to make that happen. Well, why wouldn't I just pay the full hundred dollars of upside that, uh, the actual stabilized asset, the in place, all of the changes have been made. It's got the, the full rents on it right now. And why wouldn't I just do that and realize the higher cash flow from day one. So the 53 was an in place stabilized asset that, you know, we only had three guys. It's only three of us. So, um, easier to make decisions. Yeah. That's a tough, it's such a tough position to be in uh, multifamily, such a hot asset class, um, mm-hmm. self storage where we are, you know, positioned to go into is sort of the same boat. And you, you're always told don't pay for pro forma. Don't pay someone for the work that you're going to have to do. Right. Um, in practice, <laughs> 
uh, it can get hard uh, because the owners nowadays know that they have a hot they have they a lot of them know they have a hot asset class and they're going to try and kind of extract some of what you the work that you're going to have to do um right are you still but you're still able to get good returns what you feel are good returns for you and your joint venture partners though Oh, yeah. So, okay. I believe also firmly that in life, in investing, in whatever, you have to figure out what your values are going in, right? So, you know, so that when you're in this emotional state that, you know, you really want to take down this asset and you've been trying for three years and I so badly, you know, when you get to that, you don't want to make an emotional decision. So you need to figure out what is your, of your pyramid of values, what's the thing at the top? It can be, I ha- I want to buy so that I can say I have this many doors. You know, I want to be the guy at the table that says I have a thousand doors. Or you can say, I'm, I want to be the guy at the table who has $20,000 cash flow coming in every month or so on and so forth, right? For me personally, the thing that matters most is cash on cash return. I want that forever money. I want my st- stability bucket to be completely filled up before I go into a growth bucket. That's what has my eyes on it. So in terms of cash on cash, this um, this asset that we took down, it's at nine-ish percent. For year one, it'll be at 10% by year two. So I, in my opinion, that that's that's where I want to be. Gotcha. North, north of 9%. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. Okay, so one of the things you mentioned earlier was the idea of non-recourse agency debt. And uh, for our audience that maybe doesn't understand what that means, can you describe what it is and describe why it's advantageous to investor? Yeah, happy to. So what we mean by agency, it's a governmental-backed agency, Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. So you probably know for your uh, personal home, if you bought one, that Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac might help finance the loan that you've got there. Well, they also do um, larger properties for multifamily. So in order to qualify for that, Freddie Mac is actually the easier to qualify for agency uh, debt but it is it requires a loan balance of a million dollars um, and you know a number more hoops to jump through. But the advantage there is they have super low rates for a 30 year amortization. Usually you can lock in a longer term like a 10, 12, 15 year term. Um, and you know it's non-recourse. What that means is, you know, if you have a single-family portfolio, let's say, on recourse debt through banks, and it all hits the fan, and the uh, bank comes and they take back one of the homes, right? Well, they can they can go after your other assets in order to make up for that balance. Right. So you're putting not just at risk the one asset that went under, but you're putting at risk all the rest of your assets. That is recourse debt. Non-recourse debt means they just take the one asset that screwed up. Right. So if you're going to be buying bigger things or being a part of buying bigger things to have this non-recourse debt is is super ideal. Uh, And the easiest way to qualify for that is to go in these programs that are backed by the government. Gotcha. And the amortization is 25, 30 years? 30. 30. Yeah. Awesome. That's great. No. And the, something people need to keep in mind about why I hammer this so often is the not just the amortization or the interest rate, but the term of a yeah. commercial loan. Because a lot of people don't realize, with a residential loan, you've, it's usually the same term as the amortization. It's 30 year term, 30 year amortization. You got to have it paid off in 30 years with a commercial loan. It's frequently they'll have a shorter term than the amortization. So it'll be five years, seven years, 10 years. And I don't like getting anything less than seven years because Mm -hmm. a real estate cycle is normally you know, it can be average real estate cycles about seven years. Um, Mm -hmm. And if you time things badly and you have a term that's ending uh, when we're in a down cycle and then now you're, you're faced with having to refinance, get a new loan um, and you have an asset that is, is is now distressed, you're in big boy trouble. 
Yeah. Uh, and that's why we really like to get, I really like to see seven to 10 year terms. Yeah. Um, even as a, as a passive investor, if I see somebody, you know, go, Oh, we got a five-year term. I'm like, mm, yeah, that's, that's, I'm not going to go for that. 10 year is kind of my bar. Um, I'll, I'll tell you. So for some of my so- smaller stuff, that is, I mean, the $120,000 guy, the loan on that, like, I mean, I'm willing to risk that, right? But the $4 million 53 unit, I, I need some level of comfort there. So what we were able to get, uh, I'll tell you about that loan. Um, it was through, it was a Fannie Mae product. So it's non-recourse agency debt. That's 30 year amortization, 15 year term. And we got eight years of interest only payments. So what that does is it really juices our cash flow and our what we're able to do is on these one thing worth knowing if you're kind of a more newbie is these these loans through the government or whatever these bigger loans especially if they're non-recourse they can require a, a prepayment penalty your mortgage on your house doesn't but these bigger commercial loans usually do um, and in order to kind of get around that Fannie Mae products. Uh, many of them at least, uh, will allow for assumption of that loan. That means if I want to sell to, you know, Neil um, in five years time, then Neil could buy that asset from me and take the loan that's in place so long as you check all of the Fannie Mae boxes. And that 3.68% loan with eight years of interest only will be then transferred to you. So that was another super attractive piece of that deal for me. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Well, you have given us a ton of um, great recommendations and information. What are some um, bad bad recommendations or information that you typically hear from other real estate investors? Um, If I hear someone say that, oh, everybody always needs a place to live. Yeah, that's true. But if you're in Chicago where there's this mass exodus, uh, you know, the demand for your product is going to be significantly less in a few years time if you keep losing people. So if they're banking on everybody needs a place to live, um, that's not the end of the story. Yeah, they don't necessarily need a place to live where you are. (laughs) Word. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> there are a lot of other places to live. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Well, and we're seeing, you know, we're uh, we're seeing a lot of pretty big migration patterns right now. There's a lot of people leaving Chicago, uh, the, the Rust Belt, moving to the Sun Belt. We have people leaving California, moving to Texas, moving to Arizona, moving to Nevada. And, you know, it's always real estate, self-storage is about people. <laughs> and yes. if you have a net negative migration, um, it doesn't mean that you can't make money in that kind of market, but mm-hmm. it's, it's a risk. You gotta understand that it's, it, you're taking a bigger risk. Right. You got to set yourself up for success, yeah. you know, and if you go where the jobs are, then that's where the people are going to be. And if the people, if there's more people and more jobs and you know that GDP or like the money being made there is growing, then it's like you're, you're riding a raft down the stream rather than fighting the current. Exactly. Great analogy. I love that analogy. So, um, so what are some tasks that you could take away from your real estate business that you think would make your life better? So, you know, I rely pretty heavily on property managers. So I feel like I was, I say this in like most parts of my life that 92% of what I do is just outsmarting myself. Right. Like I, um, I have all of these like automated things that I do or the way I time block my life and my, uh, you know, work is, is just to kind of remove the stuff that is unnecessary. So the Pareto principle, right? Like all I need to do is the stuff that's getting me 80% of the impact and everything will be thriving around me. Um, I'll be honest with you. I've, I've worked pretty hard 
to get rid of the things that don't serve me. I was cold calling. I was sending mailers. I was, you know, doing lots of stuff that wasn't helping me reach my goals when all I really needed to do was engage a partner who kind of filled the gaps of what I'm not good at. Mm -hmm. My partner is incredible at, you know, having his ear to the ground with brokers to know what is coming up for sale. I'm more the communication girl. So it's, you know, partner with your weaknesses. That makes sense. That's great advice. Um, what, uh, so what are you, so you're now relying on more brokers in order for you to have your deal flow, not you cold calling, um, direct to owners. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. We, um, my business partner is a broker, uh, by profession. So I, I mean, it's, this is his wheelhouse. Like he gets a chance to put to use, like what he's been doing to advocate for his clients, for himself and for me and our, our other kind of more equity business partner. So um, it's it's a really neat match that we've got going. Yeah, That's awesome. It's one of the ways that you, if you are somebody who is in the commercial real estate space, whether it be self-storage or multifamily, is that you need to keep in mind the kind of partner a broker can be is that if you're somebody who's sending out direct mails and, and calling uh, owners, that's what brokers are doing every yeah, single exactly. day. That's all day long. That's all they do. And so if you can build relationships with four or five brokers where it's a long-term relationship, um, that's, it's a huge amount of leverage, uh, that yeah. you've just added, um, now, the, the problem is getting to the point where you're the kind of person that they reach out to uh, for an off-market deal, because often, you know, once it goes to market, yeah, you know, more than Yeah. Often. Well, let me tell you this. I have a couple of thoughts around that. So number one, like I talked about my pyramid of what matters to me, right? And if I can reach 10% cash on cash within a year or two, uh, that is a deal worth doing. I don't care if it's on market. I don't care if it's off market. I don't care if it's seller financing or like, I don't know, whatever. Um, so the chance to have that many people, that many brokers doing that on my behalf, absolutely huge. But as soon as you close on a larger asset in any given market, you are automatically the pretty girl at the dance, mm-hmm. you know, and you hear it, but it's, it's just like when you had kids. Like, you know, like you, you know, that it's going to be so crazy. Like it's going to be the most amazing thing that's ever happened in your life. You know that logically, but when you're going through it, it's just such a different experience. So we are now two, three months into our first asset in Indianapolis, and we are the pretty girl right now. So we're getting first looks on a lot of things. And, you know, we're just hoping to leverage that to, you know, build a footprint. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, so when you were starting out, what was something about, let's say, larger multifamily that you didn't know that you had to educate yourself on in order to be successful now? Hmm. So I think the debt was a huge part of it. The, um, the, because honestly, part the the one of the biggest reasons that multifamily specifically is so attractive to me is because of that long term, locked in, assumable, non recourse debt that you can't really get in like office buildings. You know what I mean? And plus the opportunity to house people. So understanding that debt is completely key. And I think also one big thing, like the further down the rabbit hole I got. Um, this is just a place where people live end of the day. You know, this is, if, if you are a single family investor looking at multifamily investments, like, oh, this is so complicated. How am I ever going to understand this? It's just, it's the same. It's a, it's a fourplex with a zero on the end, you know? So the, the more you can realize that overcomplicating it does nobody any good, um, the better off you'll be. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So you're in Chicago and you, I know you invest in, uh, out of Chicago, uh, at where Illinois state is. And you also mentioned that you were investing in Indianapolis. 
are you, is this the kind of thing that you could do from almost anywhere in the world? Or you, do you need to have your assets nearby you? Oh, I, um, I feel like because I'm very big on partnership and this being a team sport, I don't have to be there, but I like for someone to be close enough that if it all hits the fan, it can go be handled. So the 130 unit I was a part of was in San Antonio. I'm not in San Antonio, but my business partner, the guy who put it on was in San, in San Antonio. Actually, as a matter of fact, right before this, I had a call with a guy in Colombia who wants to be investing in Indianapolis. And we were trying to figure out a way to build a partnership there. So I absolutely don't believe that you need to be where your asset is. Gotcha. Awesome. Gotcha. All right. Well, I think the last thing that I would like to hear about um, for those uh, who are not um, looking at the video of this on YouTube or just on the the podcast site, um, you behind you, you've got aspiring women achieving more. Can you tell us about that? For sure. So aspiring women achieving more. It's a community that we started on Facebook about 10 months ago or so, call it, that it's it's just a really engaged group of women who um, are showing up every day for themselves as themselves that really try to squeeze the juice out of life. Lots of us are real estate investors. It kind of was born of um, a group of friends from uh, multifamily investment who would read books to on personal development. And we knew that there was a, a need for accountability and, you know, collaboration over competition and lifting each other up. And I, I mean, from that group, from people that I know from that group are, who are in our world, I was able to, you know, link you guys up with a number of people. So it, it's just, it's, it's a place where women can go for a little bit of positivity in your Facebook feed, for a little bit of accountability if you're working on a goal. Uh, last month through the accountability calls, one woman decided she was working on her health. She lost 20 pounds. One woman decided she wanted to start a business and she has roadmap that and made such incredible strides that it's just so neat to see everybody, you know, achieving more. That's awesome. Gotcha. And you, uh, you have a master class series that you, you teach, uh, and you also have a, a spreadsheet that is on your site about, um, a financial freedom goal calculator. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, totally. I, I think I feel very firmly that this whole journey towards freedom of my time, the, the thing, the biggest thing that came out of this for me in my life was just the personal development stuff. I, I'm a big follower of Tony Robbins, went all the way down the rabbit hole there, mm -hmm. did every seminar he puts on. But I, I really believe that, you know, one thing he says that 80% of anything is the mindset. The other 20% is the mechanics. You got to understand the roadmap and what to do. But if you get that mindset right, then everything else is gravy. So what we're doing with Aspiring Women Achieving More, starting at the beginning of the year, a New Year's resolution thing. Um, actually, this is the first place I've talked about it. So thank you for that opportunity. Um, we're going to be hosting masterclasses where I'm going to be teaching for eight weeks time on the investor mindset, what that takes. We're going to have accountability partnerships and calls every single week working towards that. I have another friend who's going to be teaching makeover my life. She was divorced when she was younger and she, you know, had some struggles as a child and she's going to be building up this instruction. If you want to really make over what you've got going on in your life, eight weeks to help you towards that. So that's what the masterclass is and the financial goal worksheet so I'm pretty strategic in terms of maybe it's the economics, whatever, but um, in terms of how I approach anything, I, I know that if I have a plan and I can reverse engineer it, then that's how things happen most quickly, right? So if you're going to go on a diet, you decide this doesn't work for me, you're going to step on a scale and you're going to figure out where you want to end up. And then you're going to reverse engineer how you're going to get there. So what this financial goals worksheet does is, is twofold. Number one, it helps you figure out where you're starting at stepping on that scale for the first time. And also it helps you roadmap different levels of financial freedom. Are your needs covered? Are your bills covered? Do you have a buffer? Are all of your dreams covered? And how many uh, doors of real estate investment will you need in order to make that happen? As a matter of fact, I have my uh, cork board uh, right up here in my office so I can look at it every single day. 
That's awesome. That's great. For um, the, so is the masterclass just exclusively in the women's group? So it's, it's going to be the aspiring women mastermind that we'll be rolling out in early January. So, awesome. so that's what it is going to be. We, we are going to start targeting women because it's, I'll tell you that, you know, <clears throat> When women are lifting up women, that's when big things happen. You know, there's, there's data behind it. I finished a book recently called women don't ask, and it's a safe place to not feel like you're the one who doesn't get it and not ask the stupid question because, you know, who, who is this little girl to ask that, you know, we, we want to at least begin with that in mind. So yes, it will be just Just women to begin. Yeah, I don't have any mm-hmm. problem with that. I just wanted to clarify it so that you weren't like have somebody asking that is not of the female persuasion. Um, <laughs> and so if someone wants to join for just the mastermind or join the the group or how, what does that look like? Uh, that I mean, best way to find us right now, it's uh, uh, is on Aspiring Women on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash groups slash A-W-A-M group. Um, or you can go to Mandy McAllister.com and, uh, we're working to link everything up there as well. Gotcha. Well, Mandy McAllister, thank you so much for sharing with us today. It was so wonderful meeting you and also getting to talk to you for another 60 minutes or so. And, uh, I hope you we hope you have a great rest of your day. For sure. Thank you guys. I really value this. I appreciate getting to chat with you too. Awesome. Thanks. Okay, that was Mandy McAllister from MandyMcAllister.com. You can shoot her an email if you want and find out more about what she's all about. And uh, did you have a, a lesson learned from that one? Um, I thought there were a lot of good things. And now something like one thing in particular has kind of gone poof. Okay. Um, I'll, why don't me you start? start? Yes. Okay. So um, for me, it was um, when you're planning... It's important to plan what you, again, we talk about this all the time. What do you want your life to look like? And that gets down to specific dollar amounts of, of income that you want. And then it's important to then go, that allows you to then reverse engineer what it is that you're going to do, need to do in order to make that income. You know, there's people who believe in the, um, uh, nest egg, uh, financial freedom, uh, thing where you just build a giant uh, portfolio of, uh, uh, index stock funds. And then at some point in the future, you turn it on, you start collecting, you know, three to 4% on that. Um, there's other people who, um, know that they need a certain number of doors, mm-hmm. uh, in real estate to produce the income that they want in order to be financially free. So yeah. what about you? Um, I think, you know, just thinking about that, there's always a need, um, there's, there's uh, figuring out what need needs to be filled, um, when you're looking at, uh, you know, what to invest in and just kind of thinking outside, being able to think outside that box or the traditional boxes that most people go to and realizing that sometimes there are people, there are needs that don't necessarily, um, aren't your typical. So like she was working with, you know, call the college sort of crowd. And, um, you know, we've had guests who do like section eight housing and have felt really comfortable there and, and felt like it was a great, um, asset, you know, for them there. So it's, you know, there's, there's always a need for something and the need might not be, you know, everyone needs a place to live, <laughs> Yeah. but it might be that in this place, in this town, the college students need a place to live or, you know, th- that kind of thing. So, yeah. and I, th- I would even go a step further is, is don't be, don't be afraid to go where other people won't. Um, yeah. Well, you you're, you're, you're providing that need that other people aren't going to, aren't going to fill. Gotcha. So, um, um, knowledge, knowledge. Um, she talked about needing to understand debt. Uh, and that's especially important when you're looking at commercial real estate. Um, it's, it's a very different animal from residential real estate. And there's a lot, there's a lot more to it. Uh, and it's important that you know a lot more about the way that commercial real estate debt works, Mm -hmm. uh, because there's a lot of ways that it can hurt you. And there's a lot of ways that it can help you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
money. Is that where we're going next? Yes. So that first deal was that four door. Mm-hmm. Um, it was 120 um, total, about 30,000 down, um, and then about another five, $6,000 um, put in. For furnishing. For furnishing, yes. Yep. So not too bad. Location. Um, I mean, she was pretty specific that, that it really, she can do it as long as she has a partner or some boots on the ground, which, um, yeah. So uh, we've kind of talked about that in a lot of different interviews. If you go back, um, you know, if you can build out a team, you don't have to be there necessarily. There might be parts of your business that you have to do. Obviously, she's going to be involved more in the deal end and that kind of thing, but she doesn't have to be in the physical place that the asset is in. As long as she's got someone there. Um, Time. Time. We didn't really get into time. We didn't really talk about it. No. I I would say it's. You know, is she a full time? She's not. She has a, I know she has a day job. She's a medical sales. uh, She works in medical sales. So, and she's a mom. Um, So I would say it's not full time at this point. Um, or she's just overworked or she just, and the typical yeah. woman, mom, lady. <laughs> yes. Fair point. Good for you, Mandy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, anyway. Yeah. Okay. Right. Once again, that was Mandy McAllister. Uh, check her out at mandymcallister.com. All of the things that we mentioned will be in the show notes. We're doing this all again next week. Let's hit the road. Bye. Hey, before you go, if you like the show, we would be delighted if you'd head over to Podchaser and leave us an honest review. And do let us know why you like the show, how long you've been listening, and in particular, what you find really useful or entertaining. And let us know if there's anything you think we should change. Also, if you have specific questions about real estate investing, especially self-storage or short-term rentals, shoot us an email at info at roadtofamilyfreedom.com and we'll be happy to answer your question on the show. We might even turn it into an entire episode. Thanks for listening. We're doing this all again next week. Until then, safe travels. What's happening? <laughs> I'm, pa- I'm pausing for a second because I've discovered <laughs> that now that I'm using, now that we use the video, that sometimes it, I'm always like on video, I'm always coming like, so. <laughs> okay, and pause. Pause. <laughs>